Okay. Well, I'm Li Shanglin. I am Peter Nelson. I'm Flani Elio. I'm Alexandra Lee. I'm Yang Jing. I wanted to be Yang Jing. <laughs> 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 okay. Uh, oh, silence is useful. Uh, I'm going to count on my fingers to ten, and everybody just trying to be quiet. Welcome to Every Game in the City, a podcast about eight game makers, curators, and researchers who are meeting up in Shanghai for a week to try and watch every game at the International Dota 2 Championships. I'm Stephanie Bolluck. I'm Yang Jing. I'm Alexandra Lee. I'm Patrick Lemieux. I'm Peter Nelson. I'm Philania Montevideo. I'm Mei Shangden. And in this episode, we meet Philania, our final cast member who takes us on a tour of Chinese game studies where we do a deep dive into the etymology of gaming, gambling, sports, and esports in China. After that, Will, Patrick, and I tell the 20-year tale of Dota before the cast recounts a series of adventures they undertook on day two of the International Dota 2 Championships in Shanghai. sitting here in our apartment on what is day three of the... Uh, is it just day three? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the morning of day three. And up until this point, we actually haven't had every member of our team. So I'm incredibly thrilled to welcome Felania Leo, who finally, after a very busy weekend of running a conference in Beijing, was able to come down to Shanghai to meet us. So welcome. Yay! <laughs> Our final form is now, is now complete. So um, also, at the same time, you might have noticed when we were going through our names that there is a person missing. Oh, who, who is Who's that it? hero? <laughs> <laughs> that hero that we need is Will Parton. And so far, in all the days that we've been going to the stadium, none of us have actually had the stamina to make it through to the end. But um, Will decided that he was going to do one day where he'd wake up early and he'd be there at the start and just sit in that stadium for every single game that's going on today. So I'm here in the stadium. Uh, it's Newbie versus Infamous, and it's just after 10 a.m., the first match of the day of four total. Um, I am committing to sitting in this fucking chair for however long it takes for the day to end. Uh, it's a minimum of eight matches and a maximum of what uh 12 so it could be anywhere from 7 to 14 hours in it to win it in it to win it today is a good day though um because there are two upper bracket best of threes mm -hmm. importantly one between vg gaming the local shanghai's team and uh psg lgd so that's going to be a packed house to see these two teams play and then after that it's another upper bracket, yeah. a big break in the afternoon, followed by two lower brackets. So it's going to be a really exciting day. But it's also going to be potentially a really, really long day. Potentially, so, yeah. Via con Dios will, because I think, <laughs> I suspect that he probably won't be back until basically tomorrow. The, the games will probably go till after midnight today. Yeah. Though we are going to call him in, I think. Yes. Live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From our, the arena. Our on-scene correspondent. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can actually reach him on the phone later today. We'll hear about Will's big day and his journey from level 5 to box seats in a future episode.
But um, before that, I think we should actually uh, introduce Felania, who's coming and on the podcast with us for the first time. And maybe just to start, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I, I'm Felania Mengfei Liu, and I'm super excited to be invited to this interesting group. Uh, so I'm a game researcher and a gamification designer from mainland China, and currently I'm the postdoc fellow and lecturer at um, Beijing Normal University. I'm also a board member of Chinese Digra, which mm. is Chinese Digital Game Research Association. So um, actually, I, I think, I'm not even sure, you know this, Felania, Digra is the kind of the ore <laughs> something just fell over our, our shrine is collapsing yeah <laughs> we have like all the swag from the last two days piled up in the fireplace of what seems like a fireplace of this apartment it's growing and yeah. soon will provide us warmth <laughs> <laughs> so the the origin of this podcast takes place in 2017 degra australia mm-hmm. that took place in melbourne and that's where a lot of the original cast of season one met and decided that um, um, it would be a really great idea to go to Kuala Lumpur and play Too Many Escapers. Yeah, so Stephanie and I first met the whole cast. I think the whole cast. Maybe Amani wasn't there? Except for... She was no, not in no. town. Yeah. And, and Laura, Laura and Jay were added later. But we met the Melbourne crew, which included Alex and Sheng Lin. And then we also met Yang Jing at Digra in twenty Eight. in the next Digra. In Turin. Uh, so I met Turin. you right after your first Yeah. yeah. Wow, okay. hmm And Peter was at both of those events and we met you first in Melbourne also. That's right. Yeah. But we also hung out with you and Yang Jing in Italy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it, it comes full circle because Peter, Stephanie, and I were at this conference that Felania was running and translating and seeming to do like everything at. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was a really really great conference. And during um, at the start during the introduction, I remember you actually noting that this was really exciting because fifty percent of the people that were attending were international scholars and 50% were speakers who were coming from mainland China. And so there was a parody there. And um, I, I'm actually just curious to hear a little bit more, more about that as well as just kind of like, what does it mean to study games in mainland China? Well, it's um, both very interesting and challenging in a certain way. Um, just bro- very broadly speaking, well, based on my research as a cultural historian, mm-hmm. uh, we do have a very um, negative cultural attitude towards gaming in Chinese culture, especially the Confucius um, understanding of gaming as someone that allures you to the major stuff that you are supposed to be doing. While um, also in the Confucius belief, while while the the major mentality should should be Junzi, which means um I don't know a gentleman right a gentleman mm. or something like that and the game players are definitely not Junzi. <laughs> in, one of, in, in one of the previous um, research that I did I did review the twenty fourth histories and also to review the the Chinese characters um mm. that explains games and 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 also to look at like what context of the players and how the players were reviewed and and evaluated in cultural in cultural context. And the end result is they were like uh, very bad emperors, concubines, um, oh. <laughs> slaves. Oh. Well, just oh. just not the, the total opposite of, of Junzi. And also um, like females and children 
which are not supposed to be like the mainstream in the Confucius society.、Mm-hmm. So,、um, Peter. Yeah, Flani, I I haven't heard that、um, laid out so kind of、uh, concisely before, but it's funny. I always love any any opportunity to kind of、um, be anti elite, and <laughs> and I having spent a little bit of time with some scholars who are working on a lot of the like.、Um, Confucian rights revival stuff, watching it and not knowing much about it, I'm like, this is the most game-like sort of like you know、sure. ri- the like、uh, most game scholars essentially link ritual and, ritual and games as having very little difference between one another, no, and、mm. and this、um, hierarchical distinction between high and low culture、mm-hmm. is cleaving that in half and saying we have ritual on one on the one side that is. Um, for the gentlemen and games on the other side, which is for the plebs. Which <laughs> is funny when you look at cultural theorists of games and play that ritual and games that that、yeah. distinction cannot be split so evenly. So、mm-hmm. I wonder over time this there's、mm-hmm. very fertile ground for people to have a lot of fun with. Right, it is, and, and thanks for bringing that up because I was about to say that even though the Confucius、um, belief does have this negative attitude towards gaming, the actual practice of the cultural elites is different,、mm. where <laughs>、mm. where they are actually having a lot of fun playing with things like poetry and and I mean and painting, painting,、mm. right,、yeah. instrument and calligraphy and and everything like that is actually a very very.、Um, If not gamified, but more like play, playful、um, activities.、Mm-hmm. So, so it's it. So there had been this division. So, how did you first come to games as like、um, your primary work? If it has this negative connotation, did, was it hard to choose to be like a game scholar in China? And have you experienced a lot of pushback?、Uh, At like studying this like anti junsa kind of right, activity, yeah, your teachers just like, what are you doing? Right, right.、Um, I was originally trained to be an historian, and, and that's all. Like, like my my master's degree is in public history, and my doctoral degree is in environmental history and world history. So, so that's all the training I'm supposed、um, to receive.、Mm-hmm. And so, basically, it is my player instinct. That pushed me to this path of being a game scholar,、mm-hmm. where I think game is such an important part of my life to start with, and then I realize it's also a very important part of everyone's social life. But、mm-hmm. um, the point where I realized this is in 2007 when it was、um, the era. The era where the game addiction thing was、mm. going on, and there、mm. was this heavy social anti-game attitude, and it was back then. Just based on all what the addiction scholars were saying back at that time, I realized that game was misinterpreted by people who never played it,、mm. and by people who didn't、mm. really do any、um, real research. <laughs> This sounds familiar to me. Yeah, <laughs> I think to all of us,、right? yeah. even if we're not academics directly. The notion that we, our work is undervalued and devalued. Right, and oh, and Flania, does that、um, have a different resonance in mainland China because of the relationship to gambling? That I understand that gambling has a very different legal framework in China than, say, in Australia, where there is very little regulation of gambling. You can gamble anywhere, and we have our own. You know, it's almost like we don't have a social stigma of gambling where we should. Do you think it was the, <laughs> the social stigma of gambling in China already because it's so controlled that let that 
sort of poured fuel on the fire of this game addiction conversation? Well, thanks for bringing that up. It's interesting because it is a yes and no. Because um, in in Chinese, gambo and game are two entirely different mm. words, mm -hmm. and originally they were not linked. Can and you, what, what words are those? Ah, uh, 赌博 So that's for gambling, and 游戏 that's for gaming.、Mm. So they sound different, right? And, and sport、uh, is also different, right? That's 运动 which is another different word.、Mm. But but um, actually, um, in terms of gambling, 赌博 that 博 refers to 六博 which is one of the Asian、mm. Chinese game. Yeah. So um, they were linked um like like. Very complicatedly, but normally,、uh, in the beginning, when people were anti-gaming, they were not anti-gambling.、Mm. They, they did not link it.、Um, it was at a later point after two、um, thousand, I think, where in internet games there were a lot of、um, gambling-like、mm. mechanism, and that's、mm. that's where the discourse was was、mm. formed. For me, I noticed that、uh, gaming is more compared to doing drugs.、Mm. Whoa. Okay. Because of the, the addiction、mm, metaphor, but、mm -hmm. that's interesting because in European scholarship, like、uh, what was being presented at the conference、um, by one of our colleagues, Espen Orsuth, comes out of research they've been doing、um, in collaboration with some psychologists, and the、uh, medical sort of idea of gaming addiction、mm. was really just、um, transposing frameworks from. Substance addiction, like、mm. alcoholism and drug addiction, and gambling addiction, and they used those frameworks to try to diagnose gaming addiction. That's why a lot of the questions <laughs> and diagnoses really didn't didn't make sense because people weren't recognize they were collapsing、yeah. gaming into gambling and into drinking and doing drugs and asking the same questions. And of course, if you ask a gamer, "Do you play more than you'd like to?" It's very different to asking a drinker, "Do you drink more than you'd like to?" So just quickly,、uh, there's something. That I learned in medical school, the Cage、mm. Questionnaire. Wait, you went to medical school? <laughs> He's a doctor. <laughs> not like you. A doctor、uh, of video games. Yeah, much better.、Uh, I'm not a doctor,、uh, but、um, I did go to medical school, and they teach in first year a quick four question、um, kind of test to see if you are alcoholic. And it's,、um, do you ever feel like cutting down?、Uh, do you ever get annoyed or angry when people tell you to stop? Do you ever feel guilty about your drinking, and do you ever need an <laughs> eye opener, like a drink in the morning, to get you started? Well, if, you, if you answer if you answer yes to two or more, then you are、uh, an addict. No, no, no. It's not to say that you are an alcoholic. It's、yeah. the test has、um, I can't remember if it's type one or type two sensitivity, but the idea is that ninety five plus percent of alcoholics will answer yes to two or more of these questions. Uh huh.、Yeah. Uh, doesn't、wow. necessarily work. That's a nice right, right. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you could have a drink and be like, "Oh, I feel so guilty because I it's so many calories and I watch my macros." Yeah, I was going to say that what Peter said is interesting because it's like a generation thing.、Mm -hmm. Like the older generation who don't play game might well be prone to gamble a lot, and for them, gamble is not a problem. Like when you play mahjong, you gamble. Mm -hmm. No matter if there's money involved, but probably there is money involved, especially during like spring festival and the kind of family reunion thing. You gamble a little,、mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but well, it's the, also a social activity. Yeah, so it's not entirely gamble. It's like、mm. play. It's play.、Yeah. It's more like play. So、mm -hmm. for the younger generation, gamble is not so attractive,、mm -hmm. but maybe gaming is.、Mm -hmm. So would you use which word would you use for mahjong? Why? Would you use duo? Yeah, I mean, why is the verb? But、yeah. would you just call it? No, we just call it mahjong. 
Right. Okay, so, so you wouldn't even use the word gambling or gaming. It's no. its own cultural phenomenon. So it's neither it's neither Yoshi nor No, Dubois. it's just a very specific term. Which is why I need to buy the commemorative TI9 <laughs> Shanghai themed Mahjong set, set uh-huh. that is probably completely sold they out are, after Oh, I yeah. learned really? yesterday every day they would sell fifteen to twenty sets. So first come oh. first. Yeah. So if I get there at like 5.30 a.m. Yeah. or 4 a.m. Send well. <laughs> Send well in. Yeah, exactly. Our correspondent. Yeah. And, and then coming back to the original cultural attitude thing, it, it is actually very relevant because mm. that's one of the reasons, I think, why the Chinese was embracing the idea of game addiction so easily. It is because when we use the wording for game, mm. we are actually using it under a social, uh, a certain cultural context. Mm. So that context is where that it provides you with thinking that's even without going into logic that mm. you just kind of think it's right to make it addiction because it's, it's, it's mm. not the serious thing to do. I was thinking in all the video games, uh, the anti-video game you're talking about, esports, played a major role in that building that notorious uh, image in China because is it in early 2000s like where not everyone has Wi-Fi or brand, brand? internet bars yeah at home you go to night cafe and night cafe are also people of various kinds who are not considered to be gentlemen to go <laughs> and then you, your child is there so pe- parents start to worry you would do other things mm-hmm. too so, but this is the classic Nickelodeon, um, mm-hmm. like the original moral panic was that working class people were going to the cinema exactly, uh, during yeah. the Great Depression. That it was cheap theater. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that like that maps over very very well um, mm-hmm. because it, like the moral panic stuff in America, as you were saying, it's radically different. You know, it's the inquiries in the 1990s after school shootings right. that come from a totally different area. But I hadn't heard this um, such a clean mapping of the internet cafes. It's it's almost um, one for one with what people were saying about the Nickelodeon, you yes. know, pe- petty theaters. I remember like it was in Beijing. There was a fire in the cafe. And As there was in the cinema. This is yeah. <laughs> yeah. several teenagers died, so mm-hmm. that's a problem. And then there was uh, SARS. Mm-hmm. SARS. Mm-hmm. Um, so the internet cafe is a way of gathering people, mm-hmm. a lot of people, and so it's very contaminating. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah. So like literally, like the 90s virality viral of, a, of bird flu <laughs> is being mapped onto yeah. like like the internet. Yeah. So now, if you go to an yeah. internet cafe, that's what we are going to do later. We're worried. We need to have identity card. Mm. That censorship is not censor like regulation thing didn't exist. 20, yeah, years so this is a really important distinction for for uh, folks listening from the states. When you go to like an internet cafe, you can just kind of log on with your own account. Um, but in China, you would need to have identity, and if you do have a Steam account, that also has to be tied typically to a mainland phone yes, number. So which is a tech which you need a residency, card, yeah. which you need a Chinese identity card. So. That's true also for picking up tickets at the international. Like if you're picking up tickets at this tournament, you need your Chinese identity card or a passport if you're a foreigner, but only for tickets that were sold through the foreigner website. You couldn't use a foreigner passport to get tickets from uh, Daimai. Um, so why is it that even at internet cafes, they require you to give your identity cards? I was just thinking, you know, China has this really strict a regulation of identity control in a way. Maybe it first happened in game, mm. uh, particularly in internet cafe, because they can first cut off teenagers to go, and then they can trace everyone. 
Um, so, so the whole history of that mm. is is that in two thousand and seven, um, when when the heated discussion was on game addiction, it was only aroused by a single event where one of the internet cafe was burned, mm-hmm. and and then like I think a few teenagers died, mm-hmm. and and after that, um, there there have been this really really fearsome heated discussion mm-hmm. on on whether whether we should allow teenagers to go to internet cafe, and then internet cafe was taken as the goat. For blame, mm-hmm. and so、um, the government decided to just sort of closing them down and,、mm-hmm. and to let let them refurbish a little bit, and that thing t- take、um, takes I think half at least half a year to go, and then、um, and, and then there became this ID check thing.、Mm-hmm. So it, it was originally came as a way to sort of control the teenagers, people who's、mm-hmm. under eighteen years old to not going to. Internet cafes,、mm-hmm. and and then afterwards, it becomes this online、um, movement of having a greener and healthier、um, internet atmosphere tied to tied to identity, right? Real identities.、Um, I was just wondering, why is it that? So, for example, with the American example, how it's all triggered by school shootings, and that's where people's、mm-hmm. concerns about violence come from. It feels a lot more related to each other. Whereas this one, it's because of a fire in a cafe, but that could have happened anywhere. So why did people say that? Oh, and also, it could happen to anyone.、Fire. So why? Yeah,、teenagers? exactly. Why does it, it? It just doesn't make sense to me why that would、uh, cause people to have a negative view of gaming in general. No, it, it, I think it's the negative view of gaming was already there,、mm-hmm. and, and that was like the trigger to、mm-hmm. to. Which is true of the school shooting example as well. Uh, uh,、okay. Games are used as like a scapegoat or, or for a media panic that's already there before the school shooting occurs. In the case of Columbine, for example, it, it's actually it's the twentieth anniversary of Columbine this today. Year.、Right. No, it was in April. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's already、um, passed. Yeah, no, it's not today. It took place. It was it was in April, and、um, and so. Part of that, the whole narrative at the time in 1999, was that the shooters had、um, not only plagued Doom, but they had made kind of yeah, levels so- of the school. But this wasn't actually. This is、uh, whether that is something that they actually did no, or was so- an urban myth. Yeah. So、unknown. Eric Harris、uh, did play Doom, reference Doom in the video materials around Columbine,、um, and published Doom wads. Uh, one that was like a hockey wad, one that was just like a normal Doom map, a few other, a Mortal Kombat one with like Mortal Kombat graphics, and、um, part of the media panic around Columbine, where even、uh, Bill Clinton in radio dresses were mentioning Doom、mm. by name.、Uh, Amazing publicity produced. <laughs> true, yeah. So it's it's complicated in all these different ways, but it it produced these urban legends around.、Uh, Maybe there was a map of the school that was made in Doom, and so Doom was thought of as like、um, an early possibility of like、uh, this as like a military simulation space that the event was planned around,、uh, which is actually like tied specifically to my biography in this weird way because I went to Clements High School in Sugarland, Texas, and、uh, a senior there had made a Counter Strike map of the high school. And、uh, it was a Chinese、um, student.、Uh, my school is,、um, uh, I think, very slimly minority white, and then、uh, Chinese and Indian、uh, students. And so、um, there was like a, 
a panic in and of that moment after the Georgia Tech uh, shooting. This was in like 2004. No, no, it would be later, 2007. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, so he was uh, expelled and sent to uh, um, basically like a juvenile detention center for making this map because they went into his room and found a hammer and like a samurai sword just like decorative on, on his wall. So it was like a combination of uh, his Chinese-ness and uh, um, Virginia Tech and this particular Clements High School map, mm-hmm. um, which is similar to these rumors around the, the Columbine map. We, I mean, I know we, we spoke a lot about this last year. Mm. Um, I was writing a paper for Philosophy of Computer Games last year about this because uh, for those of you who follow it, I think it was maybe a year ago or a couple of years ago, that um, the Department of Homeland Security made the Edge simulation, which was a first-person shooter set in a school mm-hmm. that police would play in order to train on how to approach school shootings. And the criticism was amazing because, one, it was far more graphic than anything this kid had made. Two, you could play the role of the shooter shooting children, which mm-hmm. is not possible in um, Counter-Strike. Correct. And three, what, what I found super interesting was that their budget for that was something extraordinary. It was in the many millions of dollars. And you compare that to a kid who made a mod who gets um, kind, of, kind of locked up. That's fascinating. I was thinking if the Chinese control side is going to do something similar to that, it would be the parents learning to play <laughs> games and control. And I want mm-hmm. to respond to Alex earlier question like why like anywhere it could have a fire mm. why night cafe is a scapegoat in another thing which is also correlated to what Ranian was talking about like originally in our culture in Chinese culture play is something that distracts you from what you should be doing and what, what is the phrase for it's like play something you will lose your original will where mm. say that again one and the one as in play, yeah, wu as in objects, yeah, sound to lose, yeah, is like your ambition or the things you should be doing. Mm. And so, as these teenagers were playing the game, they weren't studying. Mm-hmm. And to study is what you should be doing from mm-hmm. age mm-hmm. six to age, I don't know, 24. And if you remember, like uh, Patrick and Peter went to my exhibition in Shenzhen, I set it up as a dormitory mm-hmm. because that's where you play as a teenager, born in my generation or a generation later. Because you're finally out of the house yes. and you have time to devote to these other activities. I originally thought of setting the whole exhibition in a night cafe, but it's impossible because of the identity control. Because uh. the dormitory is still controllable. There are teachers or supervisors who can literally just shut off the electronic devices, the electricity per se, but mm. night cafe couldn't. Mm. So mm. That's what's happened to our kitchen. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Every day we try and do kettles and rice cookers and we have to move them out to the podcasting studio because the yeah. kitchen doesn't have electricity. So speaking of... Wan Wu Sanju. Mm. Where does esports fit into this? Yeah, I have a slight follow up or, or to add to that question, which is like, Felania, it seems like a lot of your research starts with like the etymology of, of specific mm. Chinese terminology and kind of maybe how they have been shaped through literature and like historical documents. Mm. And I was also had the same question of like, how do you like video games and esports, both like etymologically and like mm. in your research, how do they like come in or like where, do, how does this lead to uh, this hybrid form between uh, 
gambling, sport, game, media, you know, the addiction conversation comes in. In the American side, the violence conversation comes in. Yeah, and maybe just uh, before we turn to that, one one quick add-on. In English, right, we have the word game or gaming and gambling. And if you look at the history of that word, it's not like um, Dubois and Yoshi, pardon my pronunciation, where they're kind of two separate words. Gaming and gambling both come from the same root, which is um, gamen. And at some point in time... From Greek, right? Uh, from, from, I think, Old English, actually. Okay. From Old English. Yeah, I think the, the Latin words would be like ludus and, and that, mm. that whole tradition. But um, within, within kind of the English language, gamen, at some point, like, there was a fork in the road, and we got games... And then we got gambling. And even though gaming is used to refer to gambling, they're kind of two separate things. Mm-hmm. And, and what's, what's interesting about this is, uh, hopefully this isn't too much of like a deep cut into academic like game studies. <laughs> Go for it. But game, game studies and gambling studies, they're, they're two mm-hmm. things that exist within like the Anglophone academic tradition. But they're, they do not touch. They do not touch. Yeah, they're like different conferences. Different groups, actually totally different disciplines. Yeah. Gambling studies is usually in the sciences, like um, doing uh, kind of like psychology or sociology, whereas a lot of game studies takes place in the humanities, um, at least where a lot of us on this podcast are coming from. So, so if we have, um, you know, uh, these words and we have within, uh, within the Chinese language, Yoshi and Dubois, where does esports kind <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, that's like um, multiple questions. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just, piling on for a while. Right, yeah. right. I, I'll just reply um, to Patrick uh, in the first place. It's, it's such an interesting question of seeing the seeing the wording for like um, game and gamble in Chinese. Because originally, I think it could be that the wording for gamble actually come earlier, because that, that refers to one of the ancient game of Liu Bo, yeah. which is already extinct. Six, and that's 6-6, six, six. Uh, mm-hmm. that's the translation. Right. Yeah, and I think the only place a North American and European audience would encounter this game is in the Yakuza series, in which it's like... <laughs> or also in... Um, Oh, there's one more game. Well, it's a mini game, the and you get you can play Lubois, and there are like tutorials on YouTube and stuff about this game, like about this Chinese game, but like only for the purpose of getting through these levels in like Yakuza and <laughs> and this other uh, game. Patrick is probably thinking of Dynasty Warriors. So, but on super the other hand, I actually find um, there are international um, competitions for back garments, where, yes. which is the Liu Bo, <laughs> but but might be in slightly different ways. So um, so that's just one thing, <laughs> which is not important. <laughs> While uh, in terms of Yoshi, it's actually um, a little bit weird because uh, normally in Asian Chinese we had the habit of using one character to explain the whole thing, mm-hmm. while as as actually um, all the phrases could came at a later stage. But in terms of Yoshi, you actually have two characters, mm-hmm. and and that Yo could mean both, like swim and mm-hmm. then play. Mm-hmm. And so so I guess that is that oh. is the one that's not very centered yeah, to this word. Yeah. So or, originally um, when I was checking on the characters used for gaming, I was checking on. C, which which is really interesting because it's just like play, where it both mm. have um, a definition of theater mm. and 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 also like 
game. Wild. So and and also we also have other Chinese characters. For example, like Wan,、mm-hmm. which is the verb form of play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and we um and if you look at the structure of those wording, um, if you go really really back, <laughs> like like into ancient times of Wan, Chinese char- characters are still in the form of Jia Gu and in a very figurative form.、Mm-hmm. You will be able to see that all of this wording, um, either comes. Either shows that this character belongs to a non-mainstream cultural background,、mm. or that it、um, shows a very gameful or playful or unserious attitude towards something that's supposed to be really serious.、Mm. So esports. So esports. Oh no! Yeah. Esports is another story. It 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 is of course a later translated、um, word because there are four char- characters in it. Dianzi Jingji. So it's even longer than. It's、Yoshi. even longer, and the direct translation of Dianzi Jingji would be electronic competition,、mm. which is more like Olympic games in a way. Yeah. In that sort of game, rather than. The normal game that we're talking about. So I guess the, this very careful wording、mm-hmm. um, shows one thing that、um, mm-hmm. this one thing is also often observed、um, around, like like observers here, where like e-sport、um, is practiced by its own members of being a superior form of gaming. Like like、mm-hmm. e-sport is a good game, while the rest of the game are the ones who who should blame for the addiction and other bad things. Yeah, it's so interesting、um, that in the North American context, the sport part of esports is usually an attempt to adopt pro sports like、uh, mm-hmm. the NBA or the NFL, something like that.、Uh, whereas I think there's a, a like、um, national distinction with the Olympic kind of etymology that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of the way that Dota、um, is narrativized as a kind of national.、Uh, Type of sport. I I did a little review for a media article I was writing about the history, brief history of esports in media in China. And to my surprise, like in two thousand three, National Sports Department already embraced this term.、Mm. So maybe using electronic competition and getting rid of all the video game term is a way to protect themselves, because at the same time the propaganda billhole is. We win another like totally opposite campaign. Like we cannot do this. So there is a competition between sports and the educational propaganda part of China, a national vehicle together from the very beginning.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that fascinates me about all these etymologies and definitions、mm-hmm. across many different languages is that they often point to either the physical、yeah. or the like、uh, non-commercial. To put it one way, like the fact that it's a joke. Like in、uh, in French, there's only one word for game and play, and it's jouer or jeu,、mm, sure. and it、yeah. comes from uh, Latin, uh, which means I jest or joke. So it's not real.、Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then on the other hand, in English, play comes playen, which means to leap、uh, for joy. <laughs> in Dutch, I was thinking about、like、physical in French. I mean, I I don't speak French. Here we go. Holy, but fair. Yeah. Do, is a、to、verb do, that mean、yeah. that that can be used for things where English would say play, like how you、um, like to do many different sports. You can have like to play sport or to do sport. That、mm-hmm. word I remember when I was learning like schoolboy French was、um, in a lot of unexpected locations.、Mm. Um, does that? For the best French speakers here, is there any analogy to the yol? Right. Yeah. Was- I think what is interesting, I guess, is the activeness of the verb. 
right? Mm -hmm. In in the fact that uh, Yoshi has uh, oh sorry Yoshi 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 okay <laughs> different dialects and things they're com combating. Um, yeah, it implies that physicality. Right, and and that actually pointing back to the history of of gaming in ancient China, where um, based on my research, originally it was all this folklore sort of games is playing by physical means, and mm. then it it becomes like all these intellectual games like chess and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So it was actually um, pointing to the very back. Um, I'm just going to ask a very new question <laughs> because this whole esports and Dota are very new to me. <laughs> um, I only am just learning now what is the difference between an esport and a game. So when we are talking about, for example, Dota as a as a thing, um, right now what we're doing is we're participating in the esport because we're going to the international and watching the tournament mm -hmm. and being a part of that. But would you say that maybe? Dota and similar games have two separate things. One is an esport and one is a game. Like, let, can you be someone who's only a fan of the game versus someone who's only a fan of the esport? Is like, is there a distinction between that? Yes, um, I I would say so because um, right now there's this emerging distinction between professional players and the players mm -hmm. that players for fun, mm -hmm. but it's not very. Um, it is still an emerging and growing distinction, and it's not very clear for now. Because um, I think one of the problem that we are currently having is we are like is we are in serious lacking of very good game research on on this aspect. Mm -hmm. So the definition of esport is not very clear. Uh, last year, I opened a column in Peng Pai Xunwen where where mm. it's just open to questions um, to to ask the public to shoot to me whatever questions that they, that they think that relates to games and society. And esport was one of the most hidden discussion topic where people keep asking like, is esport more like electronic? Um, to the electronic side of being gaming, or on the more sports side, like like does playing Wii Sport um, means that you were doing esport, or is that yeah. actually actually another direction? So I get uh, so I guess there there's still this on, ongoing continuing distinct distinction of the professional players saying that we are actually doing this as a job, so we are not the normal players, while the normal players are still a blame for taking too much into their, their time and, and not <laughs> gaining anything up towards. Mm -hmm. So there's... Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've talked a lot about um, addiction earlier, and I just wonder, so if you're a professional esports player, you practice and mm -hmm. play games all day, you play Dota all the time. What's the difference between that if you're a, you know, game player of Dota, um, you know, like a young teenager whose parents are like, you're playing this game too much, those sort of things. Like, what... Some, someone's fucking son. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've been all going... fucking sons. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good t-shirt. Yeah. My mom will listen to this podcast. Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> It does have the explicit next. No, year. you're just going to give her ideas. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're, you're like making money and doing this professionally, then you're playing esports. But if you're, you know, uh, not making any money and playing this all day when you should be studying for exams or something, then you're playing games. Um, well, then there's this new complexity um, that brought in by the online streaming where you might not be a professional mm -hmm. um, player but you were like online mm -hmm. 
online st- streaming your whole play, which means there's still this possibility of making money out of it.、Mm-hmm. And so,、um, so right now it's it's really this complicated situation where the teenagers would like, of course, to use esports as a sort of defense against the parents, like we are actually making money out of this. Yeah, it seems like.、Um... It's becoming more and more popular for people to attempt to do it.、Um, one of my friends told me the other day that in China there's a saying that like to become a professional gamer is harder than getting into Tsinghua University. Yeah.、Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, I graduated from Tsinghua. <laughs> <laughs>、oh, yeah. Are you why not both? <laughs> You're on, you're on the podcast, not on the stage. Yeah, maybe you should try again that stage. Given the stories Shenlin's going to tell later in this podcast, maybe we'll find Falani on the stage later. <laughs> I guess I'm、um, seeing a trend of legitimization of、uh, play and games by either shafting a particular member of society, like、yeah. oh, this is this the is, scapegoat. Yeah, basically, yeah. whether it be games itself or just like this particular aspect of games.、Uh, And and focusing on the like money that it brings and the success and、right. those other metrics.、Yeah. Mm. Um, so esports is it's esports when there's money involved. Esports it's esports when it's money, serious. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, if there's money, it's esports. There's none, it's game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and definitionally, earlier we were saying, you know, is it an esport? Is it a game?、Um, I think it's in the Wittgensteinian branch definition <laughs> kind、mm-hmm. of. Mode.、Uh, it's more interesting to say in what ways are these things games? In what ways are these things esports? There are lenses that we can apply to analyze、uh, these cultural objects. So I, I was going to ask, make that same point about,、um, you know, is it esports simply when there's money involved, either as streaming or,、um, or as earning? But now I'm sort of thinking to to wrap it back around to the whole gambling thing, where、mm. we're back at this question of. Is it is a game when there's no money involved, or is it、mm. gambling when there's、mm. money involved?、True. And I wanted to、um, I wanted to say this earlier that、um, from the reading I did of a lot of excellent scholarship done on the games and addiction question, they made a very important point, which was that I think a lot of game scholars might come from a position of previous fandom, and they want to leap on this argument as a way to to defend games.、Mm. And and from the reading I've done in this area. They were very cautious with that. They said, "No, it's not the point of critiquing this game addiction thing. Is not to defend games. It's simply to say that if you're trying to locate the source of a sociological problem, if you go for the scapegoat, you're going to miss the source, the the true source of a problem." So,、um, which is the source engine? <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is exactly not not to get back into the violence thing. But、um, there's an inversion that you can do in these cases of Of like the violence in games question, which is,、um, is a cause and effect problem, right? Like,、mm. Doom is not a cause of of、uh, violence. Violence is a cause of the types of representation that are common in games like Doom.、Mm. So the violence that is pervasive in American culture, for example, impacts the types of media fantasies that we have、uh, as a community or as a culture. And I think that. Um, you know something like the shotgun in Doom, which is what Eric Harris mentions in his videos. The id folks who made Doom took a photograph of a children's toy that was also a shotgun. So the Tootsie Toy shotgun, it, it goes all the way down the rabbit hole, right?、Mm-hmm. Like it's not that they、uh, that shotgun itself as like a, a plastic toy. You have to wonder why that's a toy to buy children.、Mm. 
Yeah, and and also on the on the um, Department of Homeland Security using a game. Why is the fantasy of running around a school with a gun your default solution to children with problems doing violent things? Exactly. No, yeah. I mean, a, it's what Sean Lin was saying. Like these are scapegoating precarious people. Yeah. Um, and why is it not a simulation of medical um, attention or yeah. therapy? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so these are the meta games. Around these games, violent games or gambling games or esports. So, in what you were saying about the relationship between gambling and esports in China, there's also a larger matter game around it. It's like the parent is playing the game, like gambling the kid's、mm. future.、Mm. It happened a lot, not only esports but musical instrument players. Like Lang Lang is a perfect example.、Mm. Yeah. Like people want their children to study piano, whatever. Not because, not only because this beautiful instrument or music is beautiful, but also because there's Lang Lang. For folks who don't know, who is Lang Lang? Lang Lang is like a Esports champagne playing real piano. <laughs> <laughs> He's a dandy of piano. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. But you're learning so fast. <laughs> just just forty eight hours in, and Chongyun is making dandy references. <laughs> It's the same, right? You have to have all these hour based thing. Like I played two thousand hours piano when I was already、uh, only four or something. It's the same. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a little bit like、um, I think Will was saying very early on this、um, ideology in esports of it being a meritocracy. When any of us who are in、oh, games、yeah. research, we all know that that's not really true because for a start, I haven't seen one female player at all at the competition,、mm-hmm. um, and I imagine we're looking at people with internet access, people who have the opportunity to play, etc. So,、um, yeah, I think much like games and violence, much like games and addiction. We notice a problem, and either do we go for the easy answer and stop, or do we just keep going and looking for the difficult answers that are,、mm. for, you know, where we're all kind of responsible in some way.、Mm-hmm. I think in a future podcast, we're actually going to be having a discussion about gender and esports. But、um, speaking of the the lan lan of Dota,、uh, <laughs> Dendi, we should actually just、um, we we should just. Quickly, quickly talk about、uh, Felania and your relationship to Dota at this、yeah. point, because、mm. you're about to、uh, be immersed in this world over the next few days. And so, yeah,、um, what's your background in Dota? Well, practically none, <laughs> almost none, because、um, according to the Barto player time. Type. I'm an explorer, which、mm. means I I was more of a World of Warcraft player rather than、mm. the the League of Legends or Dota player. But I、mm. did、uh, try League of Legends、um, and play very badly at it. <laughs> <laughs> so um so before I I come into this group, I, my knowledge of Dota is practically nothing. <laughs> it is only I I knew of all the news produced by Dota, but、mm. I never played it. But you did play League of Legends, which we haven't really had that conversation that、mm. at some point we're going to have on this podcast. About、yeah. all the、um, the actual Do- every esport the the Dota likes yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, oh my and gosh so- Dota likes is such a political way of saying right most people what was it that game Newell was is also political yeah, yeah. what did game Newell、yeah. wanted to be、uh, arts arts、oh. action real time strategy but also our games arts. arts Dota is art <laughs> yeah I bet many people would agree on that in、yeah. the stadium right now. 
So, but I'm really curious, why did you, um, you know, out of all of the buffet of arts, like MOBAs, Honor of Kings in China and League of Legends, like what attracted you to, to League, League of Legends or, or what are some differences that you see between these Or why titles? was that the one that you picked up and played? Oh, I played it only because I need to do my research. <laughs> <laughs> I need to take a look at what, what people are interested in, in that. And while well, on the other hand, it, there was one um, League of Legends was really popular. It was the beginning of a new era of people seeing a transition from game like, games like World of Warcraft and then games like League of Legends, which is like more competition-centered. While I was seeing a lot of Chinese-ness in this transition, where mm. I think it actually pointed back to Mahjong as a social mm -hmm. competition, um, where I think, um, I, I, I did, um, a few years ago, I did this research that, that, that was very weirdly sponsored by um, um, Bauma. It's a German car, how do you call it? Right. BMW. Um, yeah. Uh, BMW, right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, it's just ellipse my, my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, well and, and back then we did this um, factor analysis on all the popular games in China. And then we find that they, they had to have, have six trades. And one, um, one really important trait is, is that they have to have a very fearsome, um, sort of social competition, where it's like, it is social, but mm -hmm. it's based on competition. So it's not like, like one of those cooperative ones. Mm. And right now we are seeing this new emergence of a game type of, um, like Fortnite, where, where mm -hmm. like, there will be only one winner at the end, so instead yeah. of one team. So it's yeah. just getting more and more fearsome, I guess. It actually is a reflection on the current social status of an ongoing social competition. Yeah. But um, but based on that, when, when I first played um, League of Legends, I was very surprised to find how user-unfriendly that, <laughs> that game is. I mean, even League of Legends was very user-unfriendly to me back back then it was very um competitive you uh mm -hmm. other team player would would really criticize you if you play badly yeah. and so so you were under a very fearsome um so very very unfriendly social atmosphere which that would is, never happen in dota <laughs> never oh really <laughs> <laughs> i've only heard these things about the dota community oh boy but it, i think you know it's 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 really interesting that Argu arguably, uh, League of Legends is is certainly one of the biggest esports globally mm -hmm. right now. Um, maybe it's different region to region, but like in terms of the the kind of whole world, that one's kind of at the top. But we're not at a League of Legends tournament. We are at a Dota tournament, mm -hmm. and I think that there's a reason for that that we're going to be thinking about throughout the day. Um, I think that we've been going on for a while now, mm -hmm. doing some deep cuts on on. Uh, Words and etymology, <laughs> academic conferences, yeah. oh, uh, violence and gambling. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell that the majority of people in the room are game academics. So I, I think we're going to take a, a little bit of a break, and then when we oh, do you, one last thought. Oh right, because I, I I still didn't respond to the part like the League of Legends and Dota. Yeah, yeah like yeah, yesterday I did play my first Dota. Uh, Ooh, we're going to get to this, I think, on yeah. the second half. Right. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, we will get to it because expand. One thing that's like, yeah, one thing that's striking me immediately about Felania's presence in the house is like 
Delaney uh, heard like some Animal Crossing in the house this morning and like whipped out uh, like Nintendo uh, 3DS and like started playing Animal Crossing and like last night when we were uh, we got takeout and we were watching some Dota, Flying was like because we did not want to go back to the Flying was like uh, no like set me up a computer I'm gonna try it out and is the first person in the house to just like boot up and start playing Dota especially as like somebody new to the game so you know it, it's awesome to have you on the cast and we're really excited to have you in all the conversations coming up as we start to play different games together. More after the break. <laughs> now that we know a little more about the history of games in China, Will, Patrick, and I take a crack at the history of Dota. So the thing about Dota is that it didn't follow what you would think of as a kind of normal development process where one studio has an idea, they work on it over a period of time, they refine, and then they ship this final product. Dota is this ridiculously complex beast, and maybe you won't be surprised to hear that the way it kind of came into being is also an incredibly winding <laughs> and complicated story. Yeah, like... Dota is a game that could have never been designed like with a bunch of people in a boardroom trying to figure out, like pitch a game, that sort of thing. It comes from a completely different model of production, which is it comes out of player communities. It comes out of the like specific ecology of the 1990s RTS scene. Yeah, and I, I think like Shenglun, even before we started this podcast, didn't know that Dota was a mod. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. just thought it was a game that Valve made. Right, so I mean, Actually trying to, you know, explain to a friend that has never played Dota before, like, what is this game and how do you play it, is so, it seems unnecessarily complex and abstruse, and there's a reason for that, and that's because... It started in StarCraft. Right, it's because <laughs> of the, spe the specific, like, constraints and affordances of the engines that it emerged out of. That was the, the ecosystem in which that game was being originally designed. And so if things seem weird, it's because they have specific points of origin within this early history, but it doesn't you don't necessarily like know that when you're playing today. Right. So <laughs> I'm trying to think about like where we want this story to start. Like back in the Yeah, so basically like um I think the starting place, the canonical starting place of Dota is with this mod for StarCraft Brood War. One of the reasons that Dota starts in a place like StarCraft, though there are like precedents for this kind of like single unit top-down control with like spells in a point-and-click situation. It starts in StarCraft because Star Edit was much more powerful than the Warcraft 2 yeah. map editor. And before Warcraft 2, like you could edit spreadsheets and stuff in Warcraft 1, but you couldn't really like uh, do as much trigger-based events and you didn't have as much control over like what the AI did in maps and so uh, Aeon of Strife is a StarCraft Brood War mod by Made Aeon64 by... Yeah. and the, the way this mod works um, I've seen a couple different variations of it because of course like with most mods there's gonna be like lots of different versions of it even within mm -hmm. uh, StarCraft but basically I've seen maps that are just like four lanes they're like four highways. It even like mm -hmm. uses the road mm -hmm. kind of like um, tiles from StarCraft. And 
uh, it didn't, it wasn't even competitive at the start. It was just like one person per lane. I think it was like a four player game. And you would basically walk down your lane and AI units would come at you constantly and you'd have to fight them. And the goal is to like turn the balance of combat such that you could get closer and closer to the AI units spawning location. A, a lot of different mods kind of came out of that idea or cited it as they yeah. before. There were a lot of like Aeon likes, I think, yeah. even yeah. in um, So that, that's in where Starcraft. it started in StarCraft, yeah. but then it got moved over by another modder, Yule, mm -hmm. into the Warcraft 3 engine, mm -hmm. which is a totally different. So taking a lot of the same ideas, but putting it into a new engine. Yeah, and like uh, the editor in Warcraft 3 was even more powerful than Star Edit. I think it's just called like the world editor, but it used a scripting language um, that you. Yeah, Jazz, just another scripting syntax. But like, yeah. you could use it to actually do a lot more complex um, kind of transformation of the game. So you could not just set up AI and like players, but you could start to rewrite items or like make new abilities. You could like have different events happen when you walk over a spot or like the AI know how close or far you are from them. So uh, Yule was really inspired, I think, by like Aeon 64's work and built the first versions of Dota, yeah. what would become Dota. Yeah, and his big shift here is that we go away from like one person in their lane into something that actually starts to look a lot more like a team game. Yeah. So you have right. a bunch of players on one side managing right. individual heroes and then players on the other side. So it really kind of solidified the form. But it was still there was still a lot of work to be done on it, and because <laughs> yeah. it was you know pretty much open source, yeah. everybody was constantly iterating on it, and right. so the formats from this period are wild with like quests you can get in the jungles, drawbridges, <laughs> things that sound crazy to us yeah. now, but um, you know there was not exactly there's no official version of this, so people yeah. were iterating in every direction just to see what would work and what you could do within the constraints of this engine. It was yeah, like it a, a big Cambrian soup of design taking yeah. place and all these emergent things were happening because so many people were experimenting to see like what would shake out. Yeah. yeah, and like specifically when I think the Frozen Throne came out, which is a Warcraft 3 expansion, kind of like Brudor was a Starcraft uh, expansion, um, Ul tried to make like a new version of the game for Frozen Throne, but it like never caught on and he like used that as like an opportunity to leave the scene. But at that point, he actually did open source his like scripts for the game. So that's what like created this like explosion mm -hmm. of like Dota likes. So <laughs> Dota was not like a game at this point, it was a genre. Like there were tons of different variations, almost like the clicker genre today, kind of like the Battle Royale, but you could make it with like one or two people. Or maybe so, like the auto chess likes. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, so yeah, it was just like a, a kind of a uh, bunch of people started working on it, but casually, not like in a studio mm -hmm. format. Yeah, this was absolutely not commercialized. And this was all on Battle.net. Like both yep. Aeon of Strife and uh, the original Defense of the Ancients were all kind of maps that you could download on Battle.net and then connect to other people and play them. So, so if Yule's role in this was to solidify the basic format here, mm -hmm. kind of the next generation of really important modders here are to actually start curating from these, like, all of these variations right. to see, like, what is the most fun, what are the most interesting mechanics, uh, and how do we actually start to bring those together into a, a somewhat more standardized version of Dota. And that was just called Dota All-Stars. Right. Yeah, so Dota All-Stars was first made by Mian and uh, Ragnar uh, using Yule's kind of work. But then uh, the person who really, I think, took the lead during that moment was Steve 
Ginsu Feek. I, I think the way the community likes to tell this story is that like um, Ginsu made the game fun. Like he found all the <laughs> most like overpowered heroes yeah. that everybody made in all the variety of mods, and he like curated it almost like Super Smash Brothers or something. Like he brought in all the fun characters from all these different mods into one thing that was called Dota All Stars. Um, and I think at that time, like the Dyer had their own heroes, and the Radiant yeah, had their own it was, heroes. It was um, Sentinel and Scourge. Yes. And you could nowadays you can pick either any hero on either side, regardless of what their lore is. But back then it was very explicit. Like this is this is the light side hero, this is the dark side hero, and they don't swap teams. Kind yeah. of like the way it works in, in World of Warcraft. Yes. And this yeah. was still pretty casual, though the teams were growing in size. So even when. Um, Ginsu was kind of leading the team, and like um, Steve Mescon, who went by Pendragon, was running the forums and kind of doing the community. Ice Frog was there working with them already. Um, who we, we don't know his name, he's like anonymous, but it was still very casual. Like, uh, uh, Ginsu added Roshan to the game, and that was just like named after his bowling ball. <laughs> that's, the, that's the myth. It's not like Roshan, the giant dragon NPC, is just like named after sports equipment. Um, right, and it's actually worth maybe noting that we're telling a particular history, but it's, you know, all this is taking place and, and it's not necessarily like that well documented anymore. And, and, you know, we'd have to do some like deep archival work to go back and actually get like empirical data that all this happened or maybe like interview people. But it's it's such a complex history and, and there isn't like any clear narrative that's been told about this yet. And so, moving forward, uh, Ginsu kind of left the scene specifically to play World of Warcraft. <laughs> and like, I sometimes like to think of Dota as like something in between Warcraft 3 and World of Warcraft. Something where you're playing a single hero and like leveling up and like getting unique items and not worrying about the building management part of Warcraft 3, but it's not quite an MMO, it's like something else. Um, but Icefrog stuck around. Right. And I think that's what like Icefrog's part of the story is. The it's steward like, of Dota. He's the one that stuck around, yeah. Um, I think Nietzsche was there and helped uh, transition, um, but then I think left the team a little bit after Icefrog assumed. So he, he stuck around, and because he stuck around, one of the things that he could do is balance. Yeah. So once this cast of characters is assembled, how do you sort of optimize for uh, certain types of play? And so that's kind of been what he's, that's still kind of his job. Yeah, he's very still, good at it. <laughs> plus years at this point. Yeah. Um. I mean, that's not easy to do. Balance is one of the hardest things, right? Um, and so he, he tuned the characters, uh, developed the, you know, developed their mechanics over a long period of time. Until finally... Well, he made the game competitive. And yeah. I think that's yeah. like a big difference between when we're right. talking about the modding scene around Dota and like Dota as an eSport. Is like, I think when you booted into Dota, it was kind of like booting into like an infinite deathmatch and Counter-Strike. Like you're just hanging out. You almost don't care about whether you win or lose. It was like a different attitude towards the game at that time where it wasn't like trying to min-max your character as much as just force around on the battlefield. But Icefrog started to make it competitive. Yeah. So yeah. in like the, if uh, Yule was around in like 2003 and uh, Ginsu was running the team from 2004 to 2005, in 2005 the game started to become competitive, uh, especially in like China, Singapore, Malaysia, around the World Cyber Games. And this was partially because of a 
language patch that uh, Hintje, uh, Hintje, I don't actually know how to pronounce uh, this name, but um, this modder added like a Chinese language patch pretty early on in 2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, around then, this sort of professionalization of Dota is happening. It's both tweaks that are being made in-game, but also these communities that are being formed around it as people become really, really good as they spend more time with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also really kind of picks up in Europe, and it's, this is an interesting uh, contrast between the U.S. and Europe, which is that in Europe you have these relatively small national TV markets that are yeah. relatively protected from each other, which means that there's very low barrier of entry. Yeah. Uh, so actually, like Dota was able to get on TV much earlier th- there than it was in the U.S. That's so and interesting. That like really pushed, I think, a lot of the actual commercialization of uh, the esports scene, and also led to their players being better right. because they could actually take, you know, be paid to practice. Right. There was an actual infrastructure that could emerge around esports more easily in this particular region yeah. of the world. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, speaking of commercialization, like the next thing that happened in the story is once this mod has been around enough and it's installed on enough computers, mm-hmm. I think Icefrog blogged about it being on like 10 million Chinese computers in like the late 2000s. So uh, a lot of companies started to say to themselves, like, "Hey, why don't we? Why don't we make our own version of this mod?" Kind of like. Uh, you know, Valve hired the Counter-Strike team to make Counter-Strike into both an esports and like a patched uh, kind of like platform for play. Why don't we do this for for Dota? There was gold in those lanes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so there really is kind of like a a land rush on sort of the Dota format in this period. And we see, you know, certainly Dota 2 and Valve is one iteration of this. Riot Game and League of Legends Mm -hmm. is another. Um, another kind of Dota like called Heroes of New Earth comes out. Yep. Electronic Arts tries to make one called Infinite Crisis that immediately falls on its face. Mm-hmm. Um, but and there's so a also lot a of lot of are, like yeah. fighting over even what to call this, mm-hmm. right? Is it a MOBA? Is it an action RTS? Like, is I it? No is idea. it? An, what was it? Gabe Newell called it an arts. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and there was also fighting over like who of the original modders who had probably right. been working on this game as like high schoolers or maybe college students. Who can we hire to give our uh, game like authenticity or to bring some of those design lessons along into the mm-hmm. companies? So Valve hired Yule and Icefrog, uh, Riot hired uh, Ginsu and Pendragon, and there was a bunch of other like tiny hires of people um, around. But mm-hmm. that's how kind of these congealed into League and Dota, which are kind of the primary MOBA esports today. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that these companies did alongside kind of like uh, canonizing their specific format of the genre was they made it a platform where you yep. could do other things with it, including the the esports. Right. So Dota didn't re- like when when Valve hired Icefrog, they didn't really like make a new game. They built an infrastructure around that. that yeah, an already existing property. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what emerges out of that is specifically the international. Yeah. And so the first international takes place in 2011. Mm-hmm. It takes place in Cologne. And at what, Gamescom that year. At Gamescom. And or Gamescom. Gamescom. Yeah, and it was uh, invitation only, and the game wasn't even out yet, which I always thought was so interesting. Like They were putting out the eSport before like the game was yeah. even being released to the public because they understood that that was like 
what they had this to do. This was more value. Was that had more value. Yeah, it had more value as an esport, as something that people are watching before, like you even get to having people play the game. Yeah. And that's a really key moment, sort of across the industry, when publishers start to say we need to take esports more seriously, mm-hmm. because you know before that, publishers are mostly like, "This is kind of weird." Like. And- <laughs> but maybe there maybe there's some value in it, and so that you know happens across the industry at this moment. And and the prize pool in 2011 was one million dollars. Mm-hmm. And at that point, was that the biggest? Prize it was the, pool? like people didn't think it was real. Uh, right. Yeah. I remember Artosis, who's a great StarCraft II broadcaster, one of the earliest kind of professional commentators who went over to Korea. But I remember him wondering if it was like a hoax like yeah this is way too much money and also being nervous about the future of esports in general like with a boom like that in terms of money what does that do to the ecologies of all these other games right right like what does 10k and starcraft mean anymore when there's a million dollars over in dota Mm -hmm. yeah and then ironically uh, it kind of screwed a lot of other companies over who then tried to copy that like Strife, which was another iteration <laughs> right. on this format, but a, like a third-person thing, did a million-dollar launch tournament, and it, it did nothing. Yeah. Um, whereas it was super successful for Dota, um, but then a lot of people tried to copy it, and by that point, it was no longer impressive because you know the international had moved on beyond a million dollars and into the stratosphere. 30, 30 millions of dollars. Yeah, and this yeah. whole time, even with it being rebuilt in a new engine, like the Source 2 engine, uh, even with it uh, being like a big tournament run by a big company, uh, Dota is still some way in this early moment still a mod. Like it still retains like some of the weirdness of the Warcraft Three uh, editor and engine because Icefrog is still developing it in those in, tools. Right. So right. until uh, Dota Two version seven point zero came out, right. which I think was in what like uh, two thousand fifteen. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was still making heroes, or translating heroes from Warcraft 3, or making heroes in Warcraft 3. And there's something about that uh, relationship between yep. the design of Dota 2 yep. and the specific yep. technical kind of um, constraints of an earlier engine. That all give, its weird peculiarities, yeah. all its eccentricities are still Pushing and pulling, part of the last hitting, uh, yeah. stacking, like all this stuff yeah. that we're going to talk about. Like there's something very arcane yeah. about it because it comes from this other moment when the tools weren't all there to let you do whatever you want. Instead, you built what you could yeah. within a specific engine. And it's just like a fluke almost that that becomes the DNA of this whole new genre. Like yeah. those were never designed things. They just yeah. became like a common part of the way that people play this game because of it was constrained by an earlier engine. Yeah, then it just Dota contains these sediments, like these layers yeah. <laughs> beneath it. Um, and even like auto chess today, which has has taken on a life of its own, like it emerges with a fairly similar pattern of history, right? Yeah. Where in, in in this case, it's not the Warcraft three engine, but it's like the Dota engine. Yeah, Dota two these... now has mods of it yeah, that are yeah. having their own million it's dollar awesome. tournaments. <laughs> so the first million dollar auto chess tournament run by Dota Studios is uh, in October uh, twenty nineteen. So, what's in Shanghai? Come? Yeah, and so. how are people gonna mod auto chess? Like this kind of this story yeah. kind of continues in a weird way. Yeah. yeah. So. Dota <laughs> Yeah, infinite Dota. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And like one last thing is, um, you know, Dota gets launched with the international. It's you know Valve's big first party tournament, and they're very clear from the front that like, listen, you know, 
Our whole company philosophy is we give you the tools to go be productive and to make tools the way you want to, make tournaments, whatever. We're going to do this one tournament every year. And then other than that, you're totally free. And so that also, unlike a lot of other games where the publisher had much tighter control over who could put on a tournament, on what you know, terms, you have to pay a licensing fee, whatever, um, Valve just said, go wild. And so immediately <laughs> you start seeing groups like DreamHack and ESL um, and MLG immediately kind of moving into the Dota space. And so that causes this sort of rapid building of a professional Dota scene that mainly relies on these third-party tournaments, um, which becomes significant way down the line. But Like this year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think this is built into the modding kind of scene too, is that ultimately there's like... Um, the tools are given out and the labor is done in all of these uneven spaces by all of these different parties with different amounts of investment and different amounts of precarity, but it's all Dota in the end. So there's a kind of um, clever way that Blizzard kind of started doing that with uh, Battle.net, but then Valve has kind of t- transformed into this esports platform that absorbs and absorbs and absorbs this work. For the rest of the episode, let's catch up with the cast and see how they did on day two, a day full of film fests, lost and founds, dumpling making, and other adventures in and around the stadium. All right, we're back. So it's the morning of day three, but we are still kind of processing everything that happened yesterday during day two of the International. Which is a lot, yeah. So we showed up at Mercedes-Benz Arena and basically yesterday there were four best of three matches and a film contest. So I'm gonna run through it real fast. The matches were OG versus Newbie, Team Secret versus Evil Geniuses, and both of those were in the upper bracket, meaning none of those teams had lost yet at the tournament proper. And within our team, we have some Team Secret people and some EG folks. Yeah. (laughs) And then in the the lower bracket, it was um, Virtus Pro and Royal Never Give Up, a local Shanghai underdog team. We also have some RNG fans on this team, too. TNC Predator and Team Liquid. Um, And one thing that was interesting about yesterday is that the value of the tickets actually dropped because there are so many foreigner matches and not a lot of Chinese matches. Uh, Though the one Chinese match um, we'll talk about in depth, I think, as we go on. So just to set the stage, though, again, we arrive at the spaceship and we like go through security. Some of us switch places because some of us had never experienced the luxury of the lower floor. It was incredible. (laughs) I thought you were joking, but I actually got a luxury yacht. Lucky? <laughs> and then, Did they hand you I a glass of champagne that you walked yeah, through? The yeah. only person of our team who has not experienced real luxury is Young Jing, who's always been in like the nosebleed seats. <laughs> and they're actually the nosebleeds. We have row 15 of the upper bowl for some row. days, which are the last row. And importantly, the last row isn't even like graded. Meaning no. it's not raised above the row in front of it. It's the only row in the entire yeah. stadium that's flat. If someone sits in front of you, you look at the back of their head. Yeah. <laughs> it's brutal. I have to say, though, if you're going to be in the nosebleed seat, being in row 15 is actually the best because you can just stand and lean mm. and sort of sit on the Debatable. chairs comfortably without actually getting another... Pe- well, I Debatable. can stand with impunity, so mm. I'm okay. But it, mm. it started to... 
Maybe the first day everybody was fresh, but at least from my perspective, the second day, everybody started to really settle into the stadium. There's like napkins on the ground and like yes. food containers and like people with uh, people with neck pillows like sleeping yeah, <laughs> during the morning. My, my New York experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was everybody in their tuxedos? <laughs> oh, like having a can, I, can I ask the lower peak, the lower, lower, the lower level upper class people, did they, did they take your snacks? No, they didn't. They didn't. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, because like they, you know, we went into the fifth yeah. floor and Young Ching had kindly gone to the convenience store and got us, you know. Wait, they snacks. stole your snacks? They, they, they cleaned me out, man. <laughs> really? Yeah. They also, after Peter protested in Mandarin, they, uh, they like looked at your ticket very carefully. No, no, because I, I was like, I was being a bit of a jerk, but I'm like, you know, what are you doing taking my snacks? And like a police officer came over and took my ticket and he pointed out, you know, there is a bit on the ticket, uh, very tiny writing that does say, um, no you can't be in, bring in food. Actually, you know what we should do? We should check the level two tickets and see if it's got the same small writing. Because maybe, maybe level two gets food privileges. So, yeah. yeah, they're not equally what? applying this food rule, but you actually, uh, Yang, you managed... I smuggled in. <laughs> but they, didn't you have to say something to them? I told them oh, yeah, I have the very stuff. fatal disease. If I don't eat, I'll die. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you didn't smuggle them in. <laughs> That's okay, I'm always zero or hundred. Uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody has the disease where they have to eat. It's called life. <laughs> it's called metab metabolism. Yeah. And so we walk into our various yeah. class distinguished sections and we pop open the doors into the kind of 18,000 person stadium, which is ensconced in blue and purple light with giant screens hanging in the middle. And like, we're expecting like Dota to be on the screen, but it's actually like the fan film yeah, festival, yeah. which maybe we can briefly mention before moving on to our adventures that we've been having. It was like, um, not, not knowing the memes, of course, which changes everything, but it was like little kid kind of, <laughs> Like like children's YouTube, you know that like weird kids YouTube was like yeah. that. Like Spider Man and Frozen Elsa. Just, yes. Yeah, like it's like, like Father Finger. Like yeah, like really weird character based action comedies. You know, yes. they're all Johnny. trying to ride yeah. a trolley car down a hill, and you know, one of them falls. Carol's a Yeah, and I'm like this is. Yeah, it's really? like it's somewhere between like Looney Tunes, but the royalty-free audio and the uh, assets from the game mean that it has this lack of creative dynamic that makes it seem like that kids' YouTube recycled stuff. It really reminded me of um, there used to be a lot of TF2 videos on YouTube, which were made oh. with Carrie's mod, yeah. um, yep. which it had the exact same aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's actually something unique about them, right? Like the TF2 uh, aesthetic Carrie's mod stuff. It went viral beyond that community because there was a delightful jankiness to the animations yeah. and it kind of reached a broad audience. Yeah. The Dota things were only exciting, funny, interesting to the Dota literate. Yep. Yeah, so yeah. Absolutely. You are absolutely about them. right. It was they weren't janky. They were kind of smooth, yes. and that's what made them look. I think for Uncanny. for the uninitiated. Yeah, yeah. Um, or bland. Mm, mm. I was thinking Dota is such a linguistic game. You don't know the lingua, you don't know anything. Yeah. And I had the privilege to watch the finalists, like the winner of the student or the fans film festival, and it's a romance. You mm. missed all of it, yeah. That's yeah. We missed all of it. Oh, you watched the winner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
It's interesting. So for the first game that we watched, which was uh, Team Secret versus EG, yeah. we we actually I was I was sitting next to Yang and we weren't really paying super close attention to the game, but we were paying more attention to the commentary. Yes. And it's interesting on this trip we're we're kind of all uh, we're all learning different forms of language. Some of us are getting uh, familiar with the English terms of Dota. Some of us are trying mm. to familiarize ourselves with the Chinese terms of Dota, but uh, which are all kind of very different, right? But oh, the the overarching language is the language of yes. Dota, yeah. which is basically a dialect of itself. Like it's, even if you yeah. speak the even if you speak the language that the commentators are saying, it's just like and the BKBs are coming out, and he just yes. blinked in, and and there comes mm -hmm. the tides ravage, and mm -hmm. and it's just like words, 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 and if you haven't made yourself literate, um, it, it's like basically hearing a language that you're not familiar with. And it's so international, like every term has its own version in its own language. I met some Koreans, they had problems too, and mm -hmm. Russians, of course. Crucially, this language isn't just spoken, Yeah. right? None of the short films had language in them. They were all... Uh, visual. Yeah, yeah, visual. And, Which um, gives yeah. that kids YouTube thing again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> this is basically our global silent cinema. I think so. Yeah. But, but, and, and I love that you identified the royalty-free music. I was trying to put my finger on what was it that was familiar with, in many ways, like the stuff my students make. You know, if you've got an animation class and you know you make a five-minute animation, there's this aesthetic that I it, maybe I'm just a little bit out of that generation. And it's some. It's not elevator music. It's like. Um, some it's like commercial music, yeah, like that you put behind like a cheesy advert grocery yeah, store or like that. something like that. It's very particular. I also found it very funny that um, things were happening in these videos. Apparently, I will explain it to me, but I can't exactly remember what it was. There are three three heroes chasing each other, and it was supposed to be funny because one of them's very fast. One of them has a move which makes you. Do or an item or something that makes you chase the next one, and the other one was doing something else. And we were just like, oh, haha, -ha. that's, <laughs> that's really funny, I yeah. guess. <laughs> but yeah. everyone was loving it. <laughs> yeah, that film was the equivalent of like a dramatization of a mechanical exploit in the yeah. game, <laughs> where one character was chasing another character, and then the other character had a tether to that character, so it produced as if a kid on a skateboard grabbing onto the bumper of a car to go fast, it produced like a, um, a surprise Pikachu moment of, I didn't know I was on this ride. Uh, wah, wah, uh, like sad uh, trombone. <laughs> I hate to be this guy, but like this is the language games of postmodernism. Like this is exactly what it is. It's it's, what? it's layers upon layers upon layers of You are like, that guy. <laughs> postmodern guy. Dumb jokes recycled and recycled and recycled to the point where like you have to be pretty thick in it to be like, yes. I love what you did right there. <laughs> yeah. But it's not constructing meaning out of nothing. No, not at all. Yeah, of course. Referencing and building culture and all that sort of stuff. Just as someone who's not been dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Asking out of curiosity, I also heard that there's this um, dance with Chinese fans. So is that the same with the movie or is that different? Oh, so I know, so this is, these are a few things that we've missed. Uh, I know that the opening ceremony had drums like a lot of synchronized drums and then Gabe drums. Newell came out and we was like Gabe Newell? He was like Shu Shu Shanghai. 
And then he walked off the stage. Shush it. Okay. Shush it. I thought it was just Oh, no. Maybe that's how he says But it wasn't. So that is JFK, I am a Berliner. Yeah, basically, yeah. And then he walked off the stage. Yes, so Shanghai. But I think that you're right, though. I think at some point there's a fan dance because you can also buy these big ornamental fans at the secret shop. But I have to say, and this might be a good time to go live to our correspondent in the game because, because. Will, while you all were watching uh, Secret and EG, which the Chinese audience was actually mixed on, uh, there was a lot of cheering for both teams. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like there's a lot of internet kind of um, discussion over the non-responsiveness of the Chinese uh, fans in the stadium. But that actually hasn't been our experience no. at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's true that for Chinese teams, there's a unanimousness, a unity around cheering for them. But when it comes to two foreigner teams going, everybody is cheering at all the hypest moments, all the most exciting things get reactions. I was just reading from Zhihu um, that they were saying the Chinese players was actually assigned to, to different groups, so it might not be the group that they vote for. Mm. So um, that might be one of the potential um, Interesting. Causes. Generally, I felt like the atmosphere weirdly was kind of more magnanimous and enjoyable. Mm. Yeah. I think there were less stakes to yesterday's games because there are so many foreign teams. Mm. And there were also fewer but not no people in the stadium probably like 50% full at least the whole day. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then up to... Which apparently is wild for a TI. Yeah. For the first two days. To oh, yeah. And out. this stadium is bigger than past stadiums. So. 18,000 yeah. people. Right. So people are making their assessments based on the first two days even. Yeah. And it's based even, on the live stream. Yeah. Um, but while y'all were having this discussion about the kind of lingua franca of Dota and how it like relates between kind of the game's mechanisms, English terms, Chinese terms... I think Will was just like screaming his head he off. He was losing his shit. He was he losing his mind. Himself. Go! Yes! Get him! Yeah! Fuck yeah! That's what's up! Fuck yeah! Oh! EG! But I think we should also just call Will and have him talk about why it was important to him that EG won this upper bracket game. You're gonna call him now and we're just gonna hear screaming. <laughs> Maybe. All right, so we have our correspondent live from Mercedes-Benz Arena on the phone right now. Patrick is currently holding the cell phone up to the microphone. Yeah, so Will, what was... We're all wondering, why were you so excited about the EG secret game yesterday? Great question. People do need to see my work most closely with, so I just have a very strong kind of personal connection to that brand and the players. Uh, and I've star player Arteezy is someone I profiled for Rolling Stone a few years ago. Uh, so I really, I want that team to win. Um, and sometimes want them to win irrationally so. Um, such that while I really, with my uh, predictions everywhere else, try to like kind of do the most rational choice I can um, for the sort of in-app betting stuff, um, I will always pick EG no matter the odds. And certainly EG went into this series as... Um, you know, the underdog, Team Secret, led by Puppy, this legendary Estonian captain who's been around forever. Um, and, you know, it's, it's arguably, like, the best team in the world right now. Um, certainly was, was, you know, favored to definitely, if not win PI, then definitely kind of reach, like, the podium. Uh, and so it was a really, really tense 
series. It was very clear either team could have won. Um, and it was kind of game one was a lot of back and forth, game two was a lot of back and forth, but game three was where really kind of the hype happened. And PG kind of played really badly at the beginning, and they had a pretty significant, I think like a 15,000 gold deficit, which is pretty hard to come back from. And the sort of the in-game prediction meter was something uh, that EG was like had a 20% chance of winning. Uh, but they really pulled it back suddenly. So there's, there's a video of me sort of yelling somewhat incoherently. Uh, I listened to it last night, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm making noises. But uh, so it was just a really, and then these are two sort of like legendary Dota brands, one of the classic kind of like matchups in the modern era in Dota. Uh, and so for EG, which is a bit ragtag right now compared to the, the well-oiled machine of Secret, for them to eck out that victory uh, was, I think, a, a really hype thing for me and a lot of other people to see. Oh, that's so awesome. Uh, thanks for giving us a live update from the scene. One, one, one last question. How's he feeling? Oh, how are you feeling? Right now I'm good. I had a, I had a Snickers bar um, <laughs> to, you know, to, to stave off any hangry. I've got a, like, the cheap stadium water. I'm going to grab some food pretty soon. I don't think there's going to be any like real... Uh, not that there's ever a struggle for food on the luxury level. Um, <laughs> all of the yachts they give up come with a chef. Um, but I'm going to probably go grab some fried chicken for lunch for about an hour. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, uh, the tea is not in. My eyes hurt a little bit from looking at the screen. One of the things I found is my original screen or seat that was like five, um, you know, in a traditional sports match, you'd expect um, the seat closest to the arena to be the best. In fact, those are kind of shitty here because you're always looking at the screen, and so my neck was starting to hurt. So I like relocated that kind of uh, the quieter section uh, where I can actually have a much more kind of eye level view with the screen. That's, oh, very that's wild, yeah. Thanks so much for, for calling in. We're going to get back to our regular scheduled program now. Regularly um, scheduled podcast. Yeah, regularly scheduled <laughs> podcast. Thanks again. Bye, Will. Bye. Um, so one thing that's really interesting is what Will was saying about the secret EG match and the kind of legendary status of the two teams and how much stakes were in it. That's what's happening later today when we watch VT Gaming go against LGD. But the difference is, is that they're Chinese teams. So it's going to be really, really great, I think, later today. Home teams. The home teams. Yeah. yeah so uh, while Will was screaming his head off and probably <laughs> losing his voice, um, the rest of us were getting into different adventures like around the stadium. And mm. I think the first one we went on was Young Jing and I had a chore to do at the stadium. And we actually slipped it in right after the film fest, but had to continue to do it yeah. throughout the day. And that's because, like... Uh, the, the recording device that I'm doing recordings on, uh, at the end of the first day, I got home delirious <laughs> and was just like staring at my backpack for like an hour and wandering around the house and muttering, like, where's my device? Like, this is not like me. Uh, I know that Shung Lun and I like turned on our flashlights and checked mm. because we know we were both exhausted. We knew we didn't leave anything. Didn't so you all actually do we like, a mental check? We yeah. did. Yeah, we did. And so it was. I was like, even when we were talking like, yeah, to got the, the recorder. Yeah, when when I were when we were talking to the streamers, was it were they robbing me? Did Peter just like selfishly take the recorder to listen to all the stuff in his <laughs> in his hot water? He has been room? stealing the hot water. Yes, yeah, I'm glad you considered that option. <laughs> <laughs> And we, I resigned myself. Shang Lun was like, "Well, it's either it's here and everything's fine, or it's lost and you can't do anything about it." But actually, there's yeah. a third option, which is 
Someone. To, yeah, someone is helping us. So, Youngjing, maybe you can tell us what happened. <laughs> so we just walked to a random security guard. Said we lost something. He said, "Hold on, I need my boss." And then the other guy, a shorter guy, comes up and said, "What did you lose?" Like with a straight face. Yeah, and so I like showed him a Amazon page of the device, just like said, the photo of it. He said, "Oh, that's what I picked up." <laughs> Were you in five ten the area? I said, "Yeah." He said, "Yeah," and you're the only one who lost something yesterday, so it has to be you in out the area in the whole arena. Out of eighteen、yes. thousand people, people. Yeah. that's nuts. <laughs> Another time we were speaking to him, he was on security duty at the signing zone. He、yeah. said, "I don't know who's going to sign here, but all these kids are crazy, so I have to stand here." <laughs> I'll just show me the lie. <laughs> yeah, he was like, "Come back at five and、four. or come back at four、yeah. and and we'll go get it." Yeah, and so, so we yeah. added him on WeChat. I added a lot of random people on you WeChat. You added the security guard, the head of security. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's a good hookup. Yeah, and four. Ten, he said, "Yeah, come up." And we walked a long time. A long time,、tonight. like down elevators where there was an attendant sitting in them, and like out of doors where there were attendants sitting at the doors,、yeah. and into like gated VIP areas、yeah. where clearly there were like pros and people just、yeah. like taking a breather. Yes. Yeah, and we we found a small window. It was very wild. Small, a、yeah. very small window in the side of the physical stadium, like in the granite. Of the stadium,、like、hole. and there's a woman in there, and、uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm imagining like ten by ten centimeters, and a woman. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was like the type of window where like no human could penetrate it from the exterior, just an arm. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, he's not exaggerating. She has one question. What was the question? What was the color? What was the color of your device? And I said black. black. And then I said it has green. Battery、Amazon rechargeable batteries, which I don't think you translated. So then I was like pointing. I did. I oh, did. you did. Oh, that's awesome because、But、they opened it,、care. and I was like showing them the batteries. And to my mind, they were like, "Why is this guy so concerned about these double A batteries?" <laughs> <laughs> He, he's really trying to impress us with these batteries. <laughs> <laughs> they lasted all day. On the recording, the very first thing you hear is just, "I'm Patrick Lemieux." Okay. So this is Patrick Lemieux.、Uh, we're currently watching VG Gaming versus TNC Predator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was our backup plan.、Uh, and I, I didn't translate back to you because the guy was constantly saying, "Can you hurry up? It's not like I have nothing else to do." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This asshole keeps showing us these batteries. <laughs> because out of every other person in this eighteen thousand person arena can keep track of their shit. <laughs> basically, basically, yeah. Aside from like maybe the very nosebleed seats where there's napkins everywhere, I think that's true. Like、yeah. the audience is very like formal.、Mm -hmm. um, but Youngjin had an interesting discussion yeah, on our way back, which I think、yeah. is relevant, and then we'll move on to the next adventure.、But. I asked about his day the day before. He said he's really busy because this is the first time. Um, City Bank Center hold a esports like international esports event, and this is the first time they have to recheck people at least three times, two or three times. That adds their、uh, workloads immensely, and that's new to him. And also, there are too many people.、Mm. And I asked him the question I asked you before: Why are we always level two, or me always level five?、Mm -hmm. What happens to one, two, one, three, and four? So it turns out three and four already sold out at the beginning of this year to corporate customers,、mm. uh, which actually、yeah. then go to、uh, unofficial resellers. Yes, some of them. Yeah. And the first four, there are some audience 
that's the best seat in a way. But they, they have no idea how many would be there, and they have to always check with the police if it's okay to have the people. There. It's like floor seats at like a boxing yeah. match or something. Yeah, which is super interesting because when you uh, exit the subway to get to the stadium, you immediately encounter all of the unofficial resellers, yes. and there was a pocket of them that were just holding up these badges that look like the old TI badges. I laughed. I was, I was like, super, these have got to be fake. Right. I no, but those they... are the things that casters get. Right. Yeah. And players. And the corporations yeah. that yeah. have like the opera style box seats for a season mm -hmm. where they don't use them. Exactly. Um, because I guess CEOs don't go to Dota 2. So the majority, tournament. the vast majority of the yeah. best seats in the house are being resold. And they're also mostly empty yeah. the best yeah. seats in the house because these corporations don't show up and these tickets don't get sold. And they don't get Well, they get yet. sold technically because the corporations buy them at the start of the season, but they or, don't get resold. Right. Or yeah. sometimes yeah. it's not bought. Sometimes they're just given as favors. Yeah. And, and who gets those or like why corporations get those as part of the sort of economic uh, ecosystem mm -hmm. of the city, right? Yeah. So maybe this would be a good time to get into um, some of the things that we chatted about during the day yesterday. A large number of tickets went deliberately into this kind of reselling market. I think so. To, you said to the security guards that they get some of them get paid in tickets. Is that not security guard, but company that the hired company. the security guards? Mm. Right. Is Dalmai in charge of that, or yes? So that's why people hate them so much. And wow. there was a protest yesterday. Really? What? The two man protest. Uh, was that the one with the banner? Yes. Yeah. We now know how you can officially protest. True. And and what this really reminds me of is um, something that you see in like a lot of industries, like the building industry, where you might be doing renovations on a house and, you know, someone might say, hey, you know, maybe 5% of this job will be in an envelope full of cash. And that's just a little bit of tax-free money as yeah. kind of to grease the wheels. And the tickets are arguably doing the same function that if you get, if anyone gets paid in tickets and there's this pre-arranged ecosystem of reselling, then that's essentially uh, being paid in cash, which would be outside your salary, I guess outside your tax, outside your declared income. And it's mm. interesting to kind of observe this, that it doesn't seem to be a small thing of some people trying to make a, a little bit of money on the yeah. side. But, you know, here's a tranche of tickets that are essentially going to be exchanged for cash minus the reselling fee. And that is part of the broader kind of organization of the event, like a cash payment would be oh, okay. um, mm -hmm. in any other um, sort of similar. It's like a tip, but it's not, it's, you're being tipped in yeah. Dota tickets. Does yeah. that mean esports is now officially a part of Chinese economy? Is well, it is if those things are being used to, um, you know, uh, give to corporations and then and then resold. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah. it's not specifically esports, right? They could be any tickets. Yeah. It could be a, well, yeah. any ticket can be so easily resold. It's essentially a check yeah. with a, yeah. with yeah. a, a transaction yeah. fee. The transaction yeah. fee is the people who have to stand out there all day selling but, it. Uh, a few years ago, when VGL, like video game conference mm -hmm. what, what, what was hosting in Shanghai I think it's also in the same center and there are a lot of reselling of the enterprise um, mm -hmm. ticket back then yeah it's and it's super interesting but um, like Yang was saying you know this is a multi-day conference and it's super obvious that the arena doesn't know how to deal with that no. which is why no. like for example it's not the like historically you get this badge looks very official it's very fancy but here we just have these like bricks of tickets where each day we have to tear them off because that's the only way they can do exit and re-entry. And, and just it's 
having to adapt to the not just like it's one you know one concert one night only but like five days um has been really really interesting yeah and i think this has had a big impact on the staff because it goes young young jing was telling me about like the 996 uh um, kind of work schedule and this type of tournament goes well beyond that um of course and so it like stresses everybody a little bit more Mm. something also about um the the optics of this for the fan community that has been so controversial that we're sort of thinking that on a smaller level, do, does this have the sort of um, international optics that something like the Olympics would have? That on, I remember on the first day thinking, man, if you went to an Olympic Games and, and people saw this, they'd go nuts, you know, um, mm-hmm. because especially those who struggled to get tickets and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's this reselling. And I wonder if there will be any sort of negative kickback from this of people going, well, here's, you know, it, it's a matter of international pride to have such a high-profile event here, and yet, you know, there's so much bad blood being created with um, the fan community seeing that their their sport is kind of being mm-hmm. um, skimmed off the top and all these sort of things that if you're a real fan, nobody likes to pay twice as much for a ticket or not be able to get one, etc., etc. I accidentally joined two WeChat group. Both have more than 450 members. They're fans of, they're coming to TI or watching it from afar. And they saw this happen. One of the responses, this is an international event for the foreigners to come to see China and also the Chinese non-dollar fans to see what's dollar like. Mm. And they're really worried this would ruin their image. Mm. Ruins who? Ruin who's image? Chinese dollar fans. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, awesome. yeah. all I could think of was that if this was like the Olympics, it would be a scandal. But you know, it's a it's a lower profile event, but for people within that community, it's a very very high yeah. profile event. I have a very exciting anecdote that I will share later. Oh, nice! This topic. Oh, um, but but I'll mention while you were going and doing your Ocean's Eleven heist <laughs> segment. <laughs> Um, I'm my we, <laughs> we were still uh, inside the uh, kind of stage arena area watching a dumpling cooking show. What? Oh, did what? you miss this? Yeah, we missed this. What? Yeah, okay. So while everyone was what? off doing their heist, uh, after the fan film section, there was a dumpling cooking show featuring uh, a buffoonish dad mm-hmm. character, a Jack Lemon type. <laughs> Called Sir Action Slacks, <laughs> who like to Chung Lin does not know who this is, but this is one of the more famous Dota personalities. He was in a kitchen, uh, like pre-recorded, with uh, a white woman named Casey, mm-hmm. Casey would... Atkinson, I believe, who's a local Seattle Fox News uh, journalist who um, has been doing journalism and hosting of the International since twenty. She's a uh, 2014 was was TI14 no no 20, 2013 mm-hmm. was her first year I think. Yeah. Right and people really like her because she although doesn't have a Dota background uh, she's a very sympathetic outside view or yep. lens. Yeah, her and Slacks make up a kind of duo along with her cameraman uh, to produce a kind of like fish out of water and knowledgeable person who don't take it too seriously and they're responsible in the English cast for doing fan mm-hmm. reactions and little skits and like bits of things to break up the day. Casey is really good at basically handling a lot of awkward nerds. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> she's, she has gotten, uh, she's like asked sophisticated interview questions and gotten single word answers, like yes or no, for an entire duration of an interview. She is so poised. I watched her to give an interview and uh, I think, you know, the serious interview face mm-hmm. that interviewers give when there's a serious topic, she had that down pat. I was mm-hmm. so impressed. Totally. <laughs> totally. Um, so there were those two, as well as two uh, Chinese women mm-hmm. uh, who I presume were also famous, but from kind of Cast. the Chinese yeah. Dota community, except mm-hmm. because Will didn't know who they were, I didn't know who they were. I know, we'll look this up. Do you, yeah, I know a lot of because while we were leaving the arena for your device, there was someone pulling a lot of soy sauce into a bowl. Yes, that's that the cooking the show. Yeah. Or maybe Dota, I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> so that's two Chinese women, that the most two of the most famous Chinese class. Mm. Yeah. Who are they? Maybe Stephanie knows her better, you know. Mm-hmm. You know? She's great. Oh, um, wait, you know is her name? She, yeah, you know is her oh, name. I thought you were saying oh, you know her. You know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's like the who's on first. Uh, yeah, she did a great job casting the first day and was was one of the few Chinese commentators who during pauses in the game would like rile up and stir oh, up the crowd. Was she the youngest Chinese commentator? She was. Mm-hmm. Something about her is that she's very fluent in English and she had multiple relationships with Dada players. Hmm. And so for the Dada fans in China, she's like the goddess. Mm. And it's sad news that I didn't want to bring up is I googled her. She has. The sad news is that you googled her. Is it the result is, is that she has ten thousand followers on Weibo. It's like the equivalent of Twitter in China. Mm-hmm. Whereas the uh, um, LOL class oh, yeah. we met the other day, she has four million. Oh Whoa. yeah, so Faye, who you met? Yeah, that's not because one is more charismatic than the other is how popular these games are. Like, yeah, yeah, I think so, that's correct. Yeah. Wait, so LOL is much a lot more bigger popular yeah. than Dota. Mm-hmm. Which is curious because Dota was described as the epicenter, sorry, China was described as the epicenter of Dota. Still. That can be true without it being more popular than LOL. Yeah, yeah, it's just mm-hmm. curious mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. So, so here's this dumpling cooking show, which is presented <laughs> in English with yes. Chinese subtitles. Yes. And uh, it's really wild because the two Chinese women are doing kind of a diplomatic, you know, here's some Chinese food and here in Shanghai. And this is the first time. It's really exciting and lovely. And Casey's there uh, as kind of the, um, I guess, in comedy, the straight man. Yeah, right? totally. The That's how their relationship works. Yeah. To Sir Action Slacks, even the names, uh, who is very tall. He's six foot seven, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so here's this really big, tall, white dude in a kitchen with three women. And so even more kind of like in terms of the gender optics mm-hmm. out of place. He's the Costello. Yeah. And so he's making a fool of himself. He's, mm-hmm. he's um, saying, I don't understand dumplings. And he, he's kind of like pouring way too much soy sauce in. And everyone says, oh, I would have used a spoon. So what is this? Soy sauce. Yeah. Soy sauce. So how much should we add? Just follow your heart. Follow your heart. Oh. <laughs> you should have asked somebody with a healthy heart to follow their heart. <laughs> Uh, and at some point he just grabs a bag of Tostinos, which are these horrendous American brand pizza rolls. Uh, frozen pizza rolls? American dumplings. Yeah, American dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a big cut. That's a big cut, man. Well, Will even said this, like, oh yeah, dumplings aren't just Chinese. And... <laughs> which is true, like... Uh, America just lost the culture war, by the way. Random aside, the word for when something spans two languages in a single text is macaronic, which is Italian for the word dumpling. 
So this is a nice Whoa. little... Whoa. Connection. What? Yeah. But yeah, he grabs his bag of Tostinos and just like dumps them onto the counter with no particular ceremony. Oh, gosh. And yeah, it's this really cultural Disturbing. cringe moment, but it's also this is the character and this yeah. is the energy of it. And everyone's laughing and enjoying this mm-hmm. East meets West yeah. uh, skit. Where yeah, did it's, it's happen? Like, how did we not see this? You were, you were there. You were next to me. I was not there. I was not next to you. <laughs> did, did I dream this? <laughs> did this happen at Is all? Is this a Tostino? <laughs> no, this definitely happened. You were next to Will. I who must was next have been getting me. beer and Monster to oh, drink at the same time. You were, actually. <laughs> Sorry, you were getting beer and Monster so to drink. So let me get this straight. He, this guy, like, Pepsi challenged. Chinese cooking with a bag of like pizza pots. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Oh that's the goodness. that's the setup. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's that's wild. Man. There was, we're gonna have to ask <laughs> Will about this as well because he saw it. I'm not alone. The, the other foot will drop on this uh, in a little bit, but I think first we should uh, get back to Young Jing <laughs> yep. because after this dumpling thing, um, a series of uh, many of us have to leave the stadium to meet up with Thelania and Greg, who you heard on the previous podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of us stayed behind because i'm chinese <laughs> and also because i got this free gift from royal never gave up mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no up but whatever yeah. and then i feel like i have to become their fans <laughs> yeah we like yeah. visited their clubhouse which was set up in a restaurant only near the yeah. stadium and we just jung jing and i walked in and they were like here's a poster, like, here's a fan you plug into your phone, yeah. here's, like, a headband, here's a wristband, Doritos. here's, like, a cheerful, here's Doritos that are the same <laughs> color as our team. And what's so sad about the Doritos is, like, it's really cute to pick, like, the flavor of Doritos that matches your team colors, but then there's a garbage can of those at security because everybody just gets them, and as soon as they go back in the stadium, at least <laughs> if you're in the upper levels, they but go what, in the trash. But at least what we've learned is everything will keep circulating. Oh, so those, those just go direct, back into the club. Yeah, those, <laughs> yeah. Or someone will be selling them for like, you know, 80% of Fair, them. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just not everybody has Yang's food disease um, mm. where they they yeah. can keep a hold of their snacks. So there was all this confiscating going on. And oh, yeah. at one point, <laughs> I just realized maybe people thought it was those purple Doritos. You know, though, at, at the start of the first day, we got these... Um, purple plastic bags that were filled with a uh, Dota plushie. Mm. So as one guy was walking through the security, they like took his bag and started like throwing all the food out of it. But they took the plastic bag that the plushie had previously been in and they just like tossed that in the garbage and he freaked out. Yeah. He freaked out. Don't and so take they, somebody's wrapper. Don't take someone's garbage. Yeah. So the guard actually went back to the trash can and brought it back Good. and oh, gave okay. him the empty plastic. Well, we're one to talk because we have the, all of that trash just in our shrine yeah. that we've been setting up. It's not right? trash. No, 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 it's precious. Not have. True. Oh, do you have one? I, I picked up one from Amazing. the store. So, so anyway, we became fans of Royal Never Give Up, and luckily, they're like a local Shanghai team that is kind of the underdog. They've been winning their mm-hmm. matches throughout the tournament, so Yang Jing stayed behind for an interesting series of matches that maybe so you can describe. two matches mm-hmm. is them, RNG versus Russian team, VP. Mm-hmm. Virtus Pro, yeah. Yeah. And to respond to earlier topic about Chinese fans or audience response to non-Chinese teams, which is not true because at least for that team, it's a Chinese team versus a foreign team, mm. aka a, a Russian team. There are a lot of Chinese VP fans mm. and they know everyone's name and skills and favorite hero by heart. I asked them why is that first. They're like, 
Russians and Chinese have some similarity in terms of the history of Dada, because、mm-hmm. you don't have it officially somehow,、yeah. and you train yourself out of、yeah. nothing, and also because these players are young and they play in a very sunny, I call it sunny style,、mm. like they don't, they don't have a lot of like gloomy strategies which would trick you in and do things. And a sunny style, yeah, is that what、VP. they? Yeah. Is that is that what people characterize their their the VP style? style? Yeah, as sunny. Yeah, and also they're young. They smile a lot. And yeah, so they're like shining. Yeah, they're like open. Yeah, not secretive. Like radiant, you might like- say. <laughs> they're radiant. <laughs> not like Team Secret. A team. Oh, so dire.、Oh, yeah, right, evil. That's wild. So so the fans weren't just reacting to、um, Royal Never Give Up. They were also reacting to Virtus、yes. Pro in this game. Yeah, I can feel that because at the first draft. Uh, I may pronounce or say the wrong name of the hero. At the beginning, the Russian team picked Higua, Tiger, and Enigma. Enigma, yeah. Oh, a classic pair up because Tiger, as we know, or maybe some of us know, has a spell Ravage that like stuns a certain radius of enemies, and then Enigma can cast a black hole, which sucks all the enemies、yeah. into it. So it's like a classic one-two wombo combo. <laughs> And the Chinese team, I think they pick the alchemist. Alchemist,、mm-hmm. yeah, make a lot of money. Yes, all the、He's、Chinese、greedy. fans are saying stupid. <laughs> Russians are so clever. We're going to lose anyway. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you were hearing. Yeah, the reason might be RNG is not the favorite Chinese team out、sure. of all the Chinese team. They're so young, and also they their club is more successful in running LOL. Yes, and. Being rich is already good. So they're rich, handsome, and their league team is very good.、Oh. Yeah, it's like, but they're not sunny. <laughs> so they're yeah, royals.、But. Yeah, and they yeah. never give up. And, <laughs> <laughs> so random. So I was thinking, two Chinese kids. Uh, they both just graduated from high school, eighteen and nineteen,、mm-hmm. and one of them is wearing a T-shirt for LGD, the、mm-hmm. other Chinese、mm-hmm. team. Another is wearing a T-shirt for VG, so、yep. neither of them are、uh, <laughs> RNG fan, but they're there、yep. because that's for nineteen-year-old. She can, they can only afford two thousand. So they want to make、ticket. the most out of their、yeah. tickets. Like they, they wouldn't like skip a match. They'd want to be there all day. Yeah, but they're、mm-hmm. still happy. One of the Chinese team is playing that day,、mm-hmm. so it's worth the ticket. And I sit through, I sat through with them the first match. They were so nice. They explained literally everything to me. Like、Amazing. how this alchemist is going to lose, <laughs> <laughs> and one of the comments is really funny. It says money. All the Chinese people thinking are money, money, money. money. <laughs> yeah. Wow, win Russians by money. Yeah. <laughs> so, just out of curiosity,、mm. how much do you think、um, nationalism plays in in Chinese fans' choice? A lot, a lot.、Uh, so, in the second match. I wasn't paying much attention to what happened on the screen、mm-hmm. in、Because、the match. Too much. <laughs> I asked about their personal history.、Mm-hmm. So it has a lot to do with all this competition between the games, like LOL with Dota.、Mm-hmm. That's where nationalism comes in the first time in、mm-hmm. our conversation. Because LOL, the Koreans are doing better, and I think is Wang Sichong's team is the、uh, LG. 
they want LOL, but it's a huge shame. Like Dota team would never do that because Dota team is all Chinese. We're pure Chinese. Mm. And Whoa. Yeah. Wow. LOL. So it's like specifically ethno nationalism yeah. here. Yeah. Although um, interestingly, um, there are some Chinese teams that don't do that. Yeah, some have uh, a lot of them have Malaysian players or like yeah, Southeast uh, players from Philippines. Or even the case of Newbie that has acquired. Well, this is a little bit of a different yeah. story because Newbie now is what they were called Forward Gaming until they were acquired by a Chinese organization before the international because Forward Gaming had um, uh, made it to the tournament. So that also depends on how do you de- define someone is or is not Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. culturally. Like Afu, was it Afu? Afu was on the team yesterday mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. RNG. He's Malaysian Chinese, so that's mm-hmm. still Chinese. Of course, you are. Yeah. Part of us. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh wow! Wow! I'm Malaysian Chinese, but I'm part of China. Yeah. Uh, no, part of a larger Chinese. I, th- I thought I thought he was part of us. <laughs> oh, I'm Aus- sorry. I, Australia just lost. We're just going lost to fight. <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? What's my identity? <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, oh, you're no. very welcome to join us. <laughs> in <a certain> sense. <laughs> well, what, can, so, what, what can Australia offer you that has already? You know, just... What could Australia offer me, indeed? <laughs> <laughs> not dumplings. Oh, <laughs> not pizza pockets. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> the other thing is, this is some Dota pride. I think they yeah. because in LOL they they bought Korean fighters, and Koreans are historically a little bit ahead of Chinese, so mm-hmm. we're buying up. Right. And in Dota, we're buying, I'm sorry, done. Uh-huh. Oh, from Malaysia. Yeah. yeah. So okay. that means we're better, we're Excuse absorbing me. others. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I hear. I don't support it at all, but I'm being accurate. There's a yeah. lot to unpack here, because it's called the international. And yeah. like, so the concept of the nation is part of this tournament in a way that it's not for other tournaments. A lot of other tor- tournaments are organized around a specific piece of software or a specific corporation that is a transnational corporation or a transnational piece mm. of software. But this one is called the International. It's very much like uh, designed like the Olympics. I think it has a lot in common with the Olympics to be about nation, nation in some yeah. way, which mm. a lot of the teams that does apply where they're like a full Chinese team. And a lot of the teams, it does not where they're mm. from all over the world. Secret. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Team Secret being um, a really international team in that they're pulling players from many, many different countries and they all have different citizenship. But actually, this reminds me, going back to what Fulania was talking about at the start of the podcast today, when we were talking about China and sports being associated more with the Olympics and contrasting that to the, the sort of dominant way people think about sports, perhaps in a North American context, at least as being like, uh, pro sports, where there's this sort of national, but maybe more capitalist yeah. than than nationalist in mm-hmm. in some ways. Those and things so are intertwined. What happens in- when those collisions happen at, in in Dota specifically? We kind of see a mix of both, right? So there's some yes. teams that are like very very much a product of uh, different nationalities, and some whose identities are are kind of forged in uh, a national identity mm-hmm. and and you're seeing both of those kind of take place How, what makes one team lean one way or the other necessarily apart from the specific history of that team um i randomly bumped into some members of alliance right thinking about team dynamics a team that started national with a that were moved towards being a nationalist no no they were founded as being like a full swedish team 
Right, but like to me, the thing right. that was interesting about it was there. Uh, we we got to see the video of the members playing in the grass and mm. throwing frisbees to each other, wrestling, and how <laughs> fake that camaraderie felt. Mm. And then I got to interview these two members, Boxy and Insania. Uh, hello, I'm here with Boxy and Insania from Team Alliance, and we actually saw uh, these players on stage yesterday. Um, in a kind of huge match. Um, and unfortunately, you were eliminated, right, from the tournament? Yeah, um, but it's really incredible to see, have seen you play. And as someone who's never played Dota, that's a very meaningful compliment. Um, all right, question. Uh, what did you think of the international here in Shanghai? It's an amazing event. It's huge. It's our biggest event of the year. So, uh, and you can really feel it. Like the arena, all the people, the vibe inside, the production value of the entire event. It's an amazing event. It's uh, my first year that I've been to. Both of us. But it's definitely been like the most hyped tournament. It's, it's just like if all the tournaments together, it's like this is the bigger tournament. Like everyone feels like this is what it's about. Uh, the second part, uh, in our team, we've been talking a lot about like how teams work, cohesion-wise, and yeah. it seems like when, when I saw your intro video, your team is really tight. Like, what, what makes your team work? I think it's a lot of friendship, honestly. We're quite easygoing, and we get along quite easily. So, uh, I think having a core friendship in the group, it always makes everything easier. Problem solving, all these things happen a lot easier when you walk to do it. Okay, and then third question, like, what's the worst thing about Dota? What needs to change or improve? I think the worst thing, and it's not even about me in my opinion, but sure. there's a very high learning curve. The game is extremely difficult. It is the hardest esport game, I think. At least my personal opinion. Uh, there's so much stuff. I think it's like strategy-wise. Yeah. I think it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. uh, and they said, no, that stuff is all real. Like, we do actually just hang they out. We do We're frolic all good in the friends. grass. They, they, legit, they didn't use the word frolic, but they did say that they spend a lot of time together outside. We all saw the frolicking. You know, we all watched the Did you ask them about wrestling? I, I, I did, kind of. I saw like you were wrestling out in the grass. So like, oh, this is a PR stunt, but maybe it's real. No, it's real. It's oh, real? So you yeah, actually like, play for No, for real, for real, yeah. Oh man, it's much better than I hoped. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they said none of them particularly were interested in wrestling, and I should note, it wasn't a full double leg takedown, it was kind of just a playful <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. tip. Tip over, but the <laughs> the thing that was most interesting to me is, um, yeah, they were quite aware of the artifice of the video, yeah. but then um, were adamant that uh, they they basically were really good friends, and that's the core of their friendship and why their team worked well together. I think this is actually a good segue because while Young Jing uh, was hanging out and watching Royal Never Give Up and learning all the ins and outs of the Chinese language around the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, the rest of the team was meeting Felania and then like chatting with Greg. And Shang Lun, after that, uh, had his own adventure that involved uh, many different personalities from Alliance to Sir Action Slacks. Maybe not as, maybe cut that. Maybe that's a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> so hold that thought, because on the next episode, we'll hear all about Shang Lun's late game. Every Game in the City is a podcast on the Idle Thumbs Network. We recorded season two in a hot living room in Huangpu in the summer of 2019. Our theme music is a cover of Dota by Bass Hunter, a Eurodance track he released in 2006 featuring samples from the original mod. You can find us on the web at everygameinthis.city, as well as most social media networks and podcasting platforms. 
In two weeks, we'll join Shang Loon for a whirlwind night of late shows, interviews, arrests, and other hijinks as he joins the cast and crew of The Late Game, a Dota 2 talk show that's streamed nightly during the international championships in Shanghai.